Edgar Jarrell was uh, regarded as, I guess, the father of Australian ufology. We were not supposed to leave. Yes, we were. Turner examined the Australian data and he concluded that the data represented evidence of extraterrestrial craft. We have to go back. Clearly, another manifestation of the international dimensions of the subject. We have to go back! This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is May 25th, 2008, and as you may have already discerned, or maybe not, I am a little under the weather this week, a little stuffed up, kind of hard to talk without my voice getting all ragged and whatnot, but I'll do my best here to soldier onward because we have a fantastic episode on tap for you here this week. We're going to continue our conversation with Australian ufologist Bill Chalker. Hopefully you checked out part one last week where we discussed the history of the UFO phenomenon in Australia and Bill's investigation into the forensic aspects of abduction. That was all in part one. If you thought that was packed with information, you're going to be blown away by how richly detailed part two is. In short, we're going to be covering the history of Australian UFO studies from both civilian and government perspective. We'll hear about the fascinating story of Edgar Gerald, and also Bill's examination of the official Australian UFO files. We'll discuss the media's coverage of the UFO phenomenon in Australia, and how the general public feels about unidentified flying objects. On top of all that, we're going to talk about the world of Chinese ufology, something that Bill has been investigating for the last few years. All that, and of course, tons and tons more. As I noted, this episode is packed with information. The world of UFO studies across the globe continues here on Banal of America Audio. We've done South Africa, we've done France, and today we close out our look at Australian ufology with Bill Chalker. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Bill Chalker, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Bill Chalker is one of Australia's leading UFO researchers and has written extensively on the subject. He is a contributing editor for the International UFO Reporter and coordinates the New South Wales UFO Investigation Centre. He was the Australian representative for the Aerial Phenomena Research Organisation, known as APRO, from 1978 to 1986, and the New South Wales State Representative for the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, from 1976 to 1993. In 1996, Bill Chalker's book on the Australian UFO experience, The Oz Files, The Australian UFO Story, was published in Australia by Duffy and Snellgrove. 2005 saw the publication of his second book, Hair of the Alien, which details his forensic investigation into the Peter Corey abduction case. Of note, of course, is that we discussed the Peter Corey abduction case and the CSI-style investigation of all that during part one of the Bill Chalker interview. Definitely want to go back and check that out if you missed it. Bill's websites are www.theozfiles.com 
and ozfiles.blogspot.com. That's pretty much the home base for Bill Chalker. Definitely want to check out both sites, the blog for breaking news and the Oz Files for some in-depth discussion on Australian ufology, courtesy of Bill Chalker and some great essays there. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 21st, 2008, Part 2 of Bill Chalker, talking about Australian ufology on BOA Audio, Season 3. Now let's sort of dive into some of the other pillars of Australian ufology, and, and the first thing I want to talk about is Australian ufology. You know, that history of organized UFO studies, we had it here in America, we have it, you know, obviously, NICAP, APRO, MUFON, sort of that evolution of groups, you know, some of them grow, some of them die. I guess just talk about the history of organized UFO studies in Australia. Uh, you have a nice little piece on your website about it, and uh, talk a little bit about Edgar Gerald and his uh, strange story in general. Right. Well, Edgar Jarrell was uh, regarded as, I guess, the father of Australian ufology. Um, he started sort of the, I guess, the, the public investigation of uh, UFOs. He was the first one to uh, create, a, I guess, a UFO group, uh, and that, that was right back in the early 1950s. And uh, he also produced the first uh, public kind of uh, UFO magazine, the Australian Flying Saucer magazine, which... Uh, uh, started to give the, the subject prominence, and uh, all of this was by 1953, and, and uh, he started his group in 1952, and so it was one of the earliest uh, of the flying saucer groups, uh, even on the worldwide stage as well. You, uh, you had the APRO organisation, that kind of thing, was what, which was one of the longest-running groups in America, formed by Jim and Carl Lorenz, and it, mm -hmm. it, it came along in 1952 as well. So, so uh, Igor was certainly a very early player in the UFO field, the flying saucer field as it was known then, and he uh, started to produce this regular publication and uh, for its day and even today, it was a fairly little, uh, impressive little publication, etc., and uh, quite well done and professionally put together and that kind of thing, and it was like a magnet for uh, researchers around Australia and also overseas, and so there was a lot of early connections going on between some of the early researchers and uh, uh, Gerald became seen as the uh, the leading researcher in Australia at that time, and and so a lot of the groups started to uh, early efforts at trying to put together groups around Australia because we're a pretty large country. We're obviously about the same size as uh, as America or the United States, but we have certainly far less of a, a population, um, and it's uh, spread pretty thinly across uh, a very large uh, island continent. So it's it's. Uh, a pretty difficult situation bringing together a lot of the, the very diverse, spread out, interested parties with regard to this subject. And so with Edgar Gerald as a focus, um, a, a number of sort of groups started to arise and um, some quite prominent groups emerged in uh, New South Wales under Edgar Gerald uh, in Victoria uh, initially, uh, well, certainly by the uh, 57, uh, there was the Victorian group, uh, the which became known as the Victorian UFO Research Society under Peter Norris, uh, and uh, there was the Queensland organisation, uh, which was originally called the Queensland Flying Saucer Research Bureau, um, which subsequently became known as the Queensland uh, uh, UFO Research Bureau, or and ultimately became known as UFO Research Queensland. Uh, it, it emerged initially uh, around about the same time in the uh, 1956-57, and 
uh, had a, a very long and fairly prolific career, on, particularly under the research of uh, Stan Sears. He was a very uh, dynamic kind of researcher focusing on physical evidence, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Other, other groups appeared in South Australia uh, under um, uh, people like uh, Fred Stone and later on Colin Norris. And, and in Western Australia, there were similar sorts of groups starting to appear as well. And uh, it was a little slower in places like um, Tasmania, uh, the main group there, and didn't start until the 60s, etc. the Tasmanian UFO Investigation Centre. But it, it proved to be one of the more consistently better groups around Australia very consistently uh, documented the phenomena going on in Tasmania and is probably one of the, the better groups around in terms of organised UFO research and certainly documenting the, the evolution of the subject over decades. Um, but it, it, as I said, it didn't come into being until I think about 1965. But getting back to Edgar Gerald, uh, he became rather controversial. Um, he kind of burst onto the scene in 52, uh, 53, he was publishing his magazine and then um, he was asked uh, because of his prominence uh, to uh, come to Canberra or rather to Melbourne at that stage because that was the centre of I guess military intelligence at that stage mm-hmm. to um, meet with uh, the um, Air Force intelligence people there to discuss UFOs uh, and this was a request put to him by the uh, uh, Minister of, um, of, uh, of the day um, William McMahon, who later became a Prime Minister, um, and so it, it, there seemed to be some significance attached to this meeting, and he had his meeting, and uh, basically um, there were two takes on this meeting. There were Edgar Jarrell's take, which he kind of put this uh, implication that they, you know, they were doing a lot of heavy-duty research, and then there was the internal Air Force intelligence take on it, uh, which was mainly written up by uh, Squadron Leader Birch, who was the main key uh, flying saucer investigator for the Air Force at that stage, and uh, he argued that uh, uh, Gerald embellished the meeting, that kind of stuff. And, yeah. Uh, kind of didn't feel that the way it was described by Gerald um, wasn't the way that the military saw it. But, you know, I guess we used that kind of difference of opinion there between the official research and uh, civilian research. But anyway, the, uh, the upshot was that Gerald became very prominent. Uh, again, more, even more prominent in the UFO field and then suddenly uh, seemed to vanish from the UFO scene under very controversial circumstances. And part of this seemed to be linked in with the uh, so-called Men in Black saga that particularly came into prominence at that stage uh, yeah, in the United States. And the people like Albert Bender, mm-hmm. who became the subject of a very notorious Men in Black saga, uh, Gray Barker and others wrote about it, you know, and the, you know, the story of... Um, uh, that, that covered this whole saga of Men in Black. Uh, they, they knew too much of all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and Bender's wild story of uh, flying saucers and the three men and all that kind of stuff. It, it just uh, was a pretty bizarre saga. And this saga of Jarrell's, in terms of Australia, seemed to revolve around one individual that visited Jarrell. And uh, uh, this was seen at the time as something pretty sinister and strange. And and bizarre, and it even connected with uh, another researcher in New Zealand, uh, uh, Harold Fulton, who was a no-nonsense uh, guy with a military background. He, he came from the Army, I think, or the Air Force, rather, uh, and, but he was a, a very solid advocate of UFO research in New Zealand and uh, formed a, a major civilian group there in those early that early period of the 50s in New Zealand. Uh, and Gerald uh, made contact with Fulton suggesting that uh, this 
strange visitor that he had uh, that told him pretty bizarre things about the UFO phenomenon, and this took the form of uh, uh, that somehow flying saucers were going to be connected with some sort of apocalyptic event, uh, end of days type thing, mm-hmm. uh, and that uh, that this man, uh, so who he seemed to imply was a possibly an alien, uh, was going to visit Jarrah, uh, visit uh, Fulton in New Zealand, and uh, Fulton had this very strong expectation of somebody special coming to meeting, and ultimately when the person turned up, he turned out to be a person that was heavily into, I guess, alien mediumship uh, in the sense of channeling aliens, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was a whole range of theories in those days. Uh, I think uh, uh, there was a fellow called Mead Lane, I think, in, in the States that a lot of this kind of psychic investigations uh, to do with uh, what we could refer to as often the Ethereans, these, these uh, ethereal aliens. With this gentleman uh, who was connected with this, uh, he turned out to be just a, a fellow by the name of Gordon Della, who was an early enthusiast in terms of getting some of the early flying saucer groups together. He was, he was, he was certainly not alien, but he had some pretty strange viewpoints, and uh, uh, he claimed he was in contact with the Ethereans and uh, he was setting up Gerald and uh, Fulton to uh, also become Ethereum contactees, so to speak. So it was a pretty bizarre story, but ultimately the whole validity of it, suggesting that it was all part of this crazy Men in Black saga, um, pretty much uh, fell away in terms of credibility. Uh, the Gordon Della uh, really uh, was a bit of a strange character. Um, he was actually connected with a, an earlier group, allegedly, that appeared in Victoria, uh, that seems to predate, or possibly predate, Edgar Jarrell's organisation. Um, this was a, apparently a group of people that came together under military aviation astronomical circles down in Victoria and um, seemed to develop uh, allegedly from about 1949. It's very hard to confirm this because the people who claim this don't seem to be wanting to provide any evidence or documentation for, the, for this early UFO group, but it, it would be a fascinating history if we could confirm it. But... Uh, uh, Dello apparently seemed to be part of this, but he seemed to be a, a strange traveller in this exotic field of flying saucers, and, and so it was a, uh, a bit of a, a strange character, um, and certainly didn't add to the, I guess, the scientific credentials of the, of the UFO subject. And at, at that stage, um, the flying saucer movement was struggling under the burden of you know, the contactees of people like mm-hmm. Adamski and others, and you know, in the public eye, it was being seen as uh, less than credible, that kind of stuff, and. Uh, Serious researchers wanted to distance themselves from the uh, the problem of, of the, the flying saucer contactees and wanted to just stick to, to the UFO subject. So that problem, which existed obviously in the United States as well, yeah. uh, was also a problem that was being played out here in Australia as well, and, and particularly came to a head under Jarrell. And here in America, it seemed like in the 50s and 60s, there were a lot of highly respected scientists and that kind of thing uh, who were taking the UFO subject seriously uh, right up until the Conan report kind of put the brakes on that. And nowadays, it's hard to find a mainstream credible scientist who really give credence to UFOs. What was the situation like in Australia there? Were there people with credentials backing the UFO idea at the beginning and, and falling away? Or has it always been that way? You know, what's been that kind of situation? Well, there has been a real ebb and flow, just like in the United States, etc. Um, you know, the, I guess the United States, some of the key people were people like um, uh, Jim McDonald mm-hmm. and um, Alan Hynek and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and we, we had similar people here in Australia attempting to do the same sort of thing. But in Australia, um, some of the more interesting kind of scientific 
takes on the subject emerged from more clandestine circles. Um, I learned, uh, particularly during 1982 to 1984, I managed to get substantial access to the Australian government UFO files, and this was the first time that that kind of comprehensive access was achieved. Uh, uh, limited access had occurred in, in early years, but um, it was through that more comprehensive direct access uh, in the Canberra military archives that I was able to uh, connect uh, and start to, to find clues about a, a gentleman by the name of Harry Turner. And I picked up that, that his name had appeared in as early as uh, 1954 and seemed to turn up in government documents as late as uh, uh, the late 60s and early 1970s. So I thought this character could be quite interesting because he was described as a, a nuclear physicist, um, a government scientist, that kind of stuff, and oh, wow. he seemed to take a very in uh, strong interest in the UFO field. And so I thought I'd better try and track him down and I started putting feelers out and Providentially, in 1982, when I was doing the beginnings of this access to the government files, um, a chap by the name of um, uh, Robert Matham came out of, with a book called Sub Rosa, which was the memoirs of a uh, intelligence analyst, and uh, he turned out to be the boss of Harry Turner uh, during the, the late 60s and early 70s. Um, Bob Matham's was the um, scientific intelligence director of the Joint Intelligence Organisation in Australia at that time. It was at that point in the 50s, uh, referred to as the Joint Intelligence Bureau, or JIB. And uh, so that was kind of part of military intelligence. And uh, Bob Matham was the one that was responsible for establishing a, a scientific intelligence directorate within the military uh, government intelligence circles. And so he was a pretty powerful figure. And uh, Harry Turner came under his um, sort of directorship um, by the late 60s. But uh, so I started putting feelers out, uh, and I actually wrote to Bob Mathams through his publisher, and surprisingly, he responded to me. And uh, so I got to interview Bob Mathams and learn some more detail about Harry Turner. And through that, I eventually got a direct contact from Harry Turner, who told me that uh, uh, he'd, he'd had uh, indications from Mathams, uh, JIO, and uh, Asia, which is our uh, domestic intelligence services that I was looking for him. So it, <laughs> he, 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 it was surprising that there for probably uh, well, the first time I was getting assistance from our government intelligence organisations to, to find somebody like Harry Turner. As it turned out, Harry Turner had a very pivotal role in the clandestine military history of the UFO subject in Australia. And uh, as it turned out, his interests began back in the early 50s and it was because of the, the big, huge UFO wave in Australia in 1954 that his interest started to peak at that point. And he felt that um, that if it could be examined uh, scientifically, then something could be uh, uh, understood about this flying saucer subject. And he felt that the obvious people to connect with was the um, was the military. Um, so he contacted uh, Air Force Intelligence that was based at that time in Melbourne in the middle of 1954, and because he had intelligence uh, clearances, uh, because he worked as a nuclear uh, science, a physicist um, in various uh, activities uh, prior to 1954, uh, up to 1954, mm -hmm. he just put his credentials in, in a letter to uh, the Department of Air, which uh, at that time, which was, uh, I guess, equivalent to these days, the Department of Defence um, Air Force, and. Uh, 
at that time, it was a very pivotal time for the military because they were being pressured both in the public domain and also through Parliament to come up with some answers about flying saucers because, as I pointed out earlier, Victoria was being besieged by flying saucer reports and, and the government was being pressed to, to come up with some answers. Yeah. And so the uh, Air Force Intelligence were under some heavy pressure and they, when they got this letter from Harry Turner who was uh, wanting to get access to the government files, uh, they immediately jumped on him and asked him to do a scientific appreciation of the Air Force intelligence data up to that point. So that was the body of data that they had amassed, particularly from 1950 through to 1954. So they handed over the files to him at that stage and he undertook a, a detailed evaluation of the data. Now, some of the data included reports coming out of a place called Woomera, which was a, uh, a location in South Australia, which was the uh, location of um, secret experiments being done on rockets and uh, that kind of thing uh, it was really the, the focus of the rocket program and weapons program in Australia, uh, courtesy of the Australians and the British, particularly during the 50s. And so uh, there were cases of flying saucer reports over the Woomera rocket range uh, during the 50s and some of those cases were very, very striking. And so he had access to this data, um, which was mainly military data and also civilian cases, and uh, he eventually wrote a report uh, that, that eventually was finalised by the late, at the end of 1954, and uh, became available to the internal echelons of uh, military intelligence. Unfortunately, uh, for military intelligence, it wasn't the conclusion that they wanted. <laughs> they wanted a conclusion that all this flying saucer stuff was rubbish. But Turner uh, had examined the Australian data and he actually compared it to the data that Donald Keogh in America was coming out with as well. So he used that as a, as a support to his own study of the Australian data. And he concluded, one of his conclusions was that the data represented evidence of extraterrestrial craft and that was a pretty extraordinary conclusion to, to have and uh, military intelligence in Australia uh, didn't want to know about it. They, they, they actually uh, concluded, well they actually went to the trouble of going to um, the Air Attaché in Washington, uh, the Australian Air Attaché and asking them to contact the, their equivalents in the United States Air Force to see whether they could establish the bona fides of Donald Keogh. At that, at that stage, during 1954-55, uh, the United States Air Force were caught up in a rather misguided campaign to discredit Donald Keogh, and because Keogh was coming out with some pretty potent claims, etc., that you know that the flying saucers represented interplanetary visitors, and that the government was covering it up, and you know, he, was, he had his various best-selling books, etc. So. Donald Keogh was a bit of a thorn in the Air Force's, the United States Air Force's side, and uh, uh, they really wanted to discredit him. And, and so they were saying at that point that the, the data that he claimed to be documenting uh, was not a legitimate Air Force, U.S. Air Force data. Uh, but in actual fact, that was a lie. And um, but at that time, that was the answer that was um, fed back to the Australian authorities. And because Turner had relied so much on comparing the Australian data with Donald Keogh's data, uh, they felt that this was a, a way out of uh, getting caught up in trying to recommend uh, serious official interest in Australia. And so, and so basically because of, uh, I guess, 
some, some uh, sort of a deceptive sort of situation from the United States Air Force at that time conveyed to Australian military authorities uh, a first attempted serious scientific investigation in Australia was kind of scuttled uh, courtesy of rejecting Turner's data. Wow. So, uh, so it, was, it was an interesting exercise, but that didn't really um, put Turner off. He um, got caught up. He, he was uh, basically the key uh, health physics officer at the very controversial um, British atomic bomb trials at Maralinga. This is another facility in South Australia where they tested atomic weapons in Australia, uh, the British atomic bomb program, and uh, very controversial and very, uh, well, the subject of a lot of uh, agitation and problems in Australia. But uh, uh, he was the Australian health physics officer during those military trials. And uh, he, he, he highlighted that he, he was aware of UFO events during those bomb trials and also, as I said earlier, in terms of the Woomera facility, which was uh, closer to Adelaide. Uh, and so he was privy to a lot of official UFO data and uh, started to believe that there was certainly something substantial to the UFO subject. His own research into the government files concerned that. And so he came back into the UFO subject uh, in a strong way, once again in a clandestine way in the late 60s under Bob Mathams in the Joint Intelligence Organisation and started to agitate for a serious scientific investigation even in the late 60s and early 70s. And it got to a stage where he was able to get the support of government scientists, uh, even the, the chief scientist um, uh, that, that of the day, uh, and uh, was able to start to establish what, that, what was essentially a rapid intervention team, a, a team of scientists and military people that would fly out to particularly a UFO landing type case and, and conduct investigations. But unfortunately, the timing, all of these, all these things are subject to problems, but the timing of it was was in the wake of the Condon Report, the uh, yeah. Colorado University uh, commissioned, uh, well, commissioned by the United States Air Force, uh, ultimately was deemed to have buried the UFO subject in America, but uh, it came out in 1969, and that was the peak of uh, the efforts of Harry Turner doing this clandestine effort at establishing serious investigations within the government military science network. And uh, at that time, the, the team was just coming together and being sanctioned and uh, he was asked to investigate a, a breakout of UFO reports in Western Australia in 1969. And he, uh, he went over there, uh, both under the auspices of the Air Force and also under the, the Joint Intelligence Organisation auspices, and uh, conducted investigations. And there was one, there was a whole range of reports going on there. One of them was a striking radar visual report, uh, which he endorsed as being credible. But he also criticised the. Royal Australian Air Force, that's the RWF's handling of the UFO subject. But essentially, these guys were undermanned, under-resourced, and, and were hard-pressed to conduct a serious investigation. So Turner felt it was valid to criticise it, but at that time, um, the entire military intelligence apparatus was under attack in, in the sense that they were all trying to keep control of their own respective empires. And Turner was seen as an outsider because he was involved in... Uh, the Joint Intelligence Organisation is an outsider to the Air Force and uh, his criticism wasn't taken kindly and, and ultimately his access was uh, was was um, dropped. He wasn't allowed to get access to the files and the whole enterprise of establishing this rapid intervention team died on the vine, so to speak, and, uh, and so once again an attempt to, to establish scientific investigations within the military intelligence community was killed off 
this time through, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the fallout of the Condon Report. Wow. See, that's fascinating stuff because you don't realize, I never realized how far-reaching the effect of the Condon Report was, but when I hear this story, it's even more remarkable to to realize the damage that that report did. Now, was that the end of official Australian government investigations into UFOs as far as the public was concerned? Uh, not really. Uh, uh, throughout all this, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s and through to the 80s, um, the RAAF or the Royal Australian Air Force was the official examiner of UFO reports uh, and they examined quite a large number of reports over the decades and uh, but their conclusion essentially was that there was nothing in it as far as uh, a substantial threat and, and they certainly as far as they were concerned there was nothing in it from the point of view of evidence of extraterrestrial uh, presence or anything like that. that that wasn't their brief they were just interested in from the point of view of it being possible evidence for uh, national security problems or whatever, and so they kind of largely dismissed it. They, they, they kind of saw the whole UFO thing as a problem. Uh, they called it the UFO problem. They wanted it to go away. But when people like myself uh, examined the files in detail, uh, and I did that during 1982 to 84 over four visits to Canberra uh, and examined it uh, in, in the, within the Department of Defence uh, facilities there, uh, it was clear to me that uh, there were many cases there that were unexplainable, uh, but basically the Air Force just didn't uh, want to bother with it. Uh, they uh, they didn't uh, they didn't do anything with the unexplained cases. They just saw that as a problem, and, and the way they responded to it was they, they simply ignored those unexplained cases. And there were some pretty impressive cases uh, amongst those one, one uh, the Air Force files. Uh, one of the most striking was a uh, uh, for example, uh, and this. We went to the heart of the whole national security implication as well, was that in 1973 in October, um, there was, a, there, there was a, a base in Western Australia at Northwest Cape, and this was a combined American-Australian uh, base, substantially American, uh, which uh, was essentially an NSA type of uh, operation uh, out of Northwest Cape, and it was there as a, a monitoring facility uh, with regard to Soviet and uh, and communist activity worldwide, Chinese, uh, uh, Russians, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were using satellite monitoring, that kind of thing, to uh, monitor so uh, communist activity. And during October, uh, there was a, a major UFO sighting there made by the deputy commander of the base and also a fire captain independently on the base of a UFO hovering to the west of the base, um, a large sort of satin-shaped object uh, which then took off at high speed, uh, according to the um, fire captain and the deputy commander. This thing took off at a speed way beyond anything that they were were remotely familiar with, and therefore here we have a uh, a UFO event occurring over a um, a very sensitive military installation, and yet beyond that, also that same evening when the event UFO event occurred, that same base was used to initiate a full nuclear alert to American forces in the Pacific and Indian region because of a NSA misreading of a intercepted communication out of Syria. They thought that the Russians were going to go into the Middle East and invade and this was during the 1973 uh, Middle East uh, conflict and uh, because of that NSA misreading of uh, intercepted communication, uh, American forces were put on to uh, full nuclear alert 
and was one of those few occasions that Nixon, I guess, uh, as a diversion to Watergate, was using uh, uh, the the old uh, tail wagging the dog, uh, that kind of caper yeah. uh, to uh, deflect domestic problems, uh, and was uh, apparently threatening to use nuclear weapons against the Russians and. Uh, Ultimately, it was a, a non-event, and uh, the Russians weren't going in the Middle East at that stage. But it was very striking that that Northwest Cape was used uh, as a to issue that full nuclear alert during that same evening of the UFO event. So yeah. it, it, it certainly had strong national security implications, uh, and so that was one just one one example. Yeah, interesting. Now, um, just to sort of jump back to organized UFO studies, ufology, where would you say, obviously, uh, as we've seen here in America, the the popularity, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, of ufology has its ebbs and flows. Where would you say the field is at right now in Australia? I, I know all around the world it seemed to peak in the 90s with the X-Files boom, um, and then kind of really took a hit after that, and 9-11 really did a number on ufology here in America. Where was the state of ufology uh, in Australia today? Well, I, I see uh, ufology uh, in terms of the civilian yeah. research situation. It, it's it's pretty robust. Um, at the moment, we appear to be going through a bit of a, a wave of UFO reports at the moment, uh, uh, but also, too, we've got a fairly robust UFO community. We've got the Australian UFO Research Network uh, uh, that operates out of Brisbane. That's kind of a, uh, a loose networking arrangement that covers uh, right across Australia. Um, there's investigators in every state. There's a toll-free telephone network that operates. Uh, there's a national newsstand publication that comes out of that network um, that's available through news agencies right across Australia. Um, uh, so there's a very robust kind of reporting, but there's also separate civilian groups in every state. Um, and, and so the interest is still very strong, and I guess that's sustained also by the Internet presence as well. A lot of these groups have uh, Internet presences as well. And so... So I don't see any manifestation of a of a malaise or or the death of ufology as some people and commentators have regularly come up with, particularly in the last decade or so. Uh, the death of ufology has been regularly uh, broadcast uh, through usually fairly sloppy media reporting half the time, but uh, it seems to me that the subject's alive and well and kicking away in Australia and. Uh, even only a month or two ago, I was investigating a, a case of a UFO landing case in a, a Sydney suburb, a beachside suburb that seemed to involve a circular object with an entity in it uh, that apparently affected or burnt part of the Bitchman Road, etc. So there are still striking cases occurring, um, and that's been the case um, for decades here in Australia. That's good that it's still it's still going strong. It sounds like it's more organised than it had been when the 50s when it first started up. Well, that. Through the 50s and 60s, uh, it was essentially independent groups that grew up, fairly strong groups, and that was really a product of the fact that we had a thinly dispersed population uh, that's mainly around uh, major capital cities and that kind of stuff. And so we had the development of strong, robust state-based groups. And uh, during the 60s, there were efforts to come up with national networks, such as what was called CAPIO or the Commonwealth aerial um, phenomena investigation organisation, I think that's what it stood for, and and then subsequently uh, during the 70s there was the uh, uh, the development of what became this, the Australian Centre for UFO Studies, which was an offshoot of uh, the result of Alan Hynek's visit in 1973. So there, there were a number of uh, networks established even during the 80s. There was the uh, UFO Research Australia network as well, 
of all of these efforts at national networking right across the country and uh, the latest manifestation of that uh, is the Australian UFO Research Network, which is doing a pretty good, robust job of uh, trying to coordinate a lot of the activity across the country. Yeah, and why do you think it goes through these different manifestations? Just, uh, you know, like a funds type of thing, and then one shuts down and a new one comes up, or, or the usual... Well, I think, I think a, lot of that, a lot of that is, a lot of it's to do, I think, with a, a lot of the politicking that goes on within, uh, within UFO civilian groups as yeah. well. A lot of them want to maintain their own independent identities and don't care to cooperate with national networking and that kind of stuff. So there's been a real ebb and flow of that, and I'm sure that kind of thing occurs in other countries. Well, I know it does occur in other countries like the United States and Britain and that kind of thing, and South America and uh, other other locations around the world, and France and places like that. But uh, uh, it's still uh, a pretty robust enterprise here in Australia. There, there is a good, solid networking arrangement going on, and, and there's also good, solid, strong individual state groups as well and uh, individual researchers uh, like myself as, as well that contribute to a pretty healthy UFO research community. There you go, yeah, nice. And then uh, just to touch on the Australian government and the UFO phenomenon, we've already been talking a lot about it, but um, did they have anything of the equivalent to like a blue book situation or in contemporary times to, you know, like the Nick Pope position that he had in England? Yeah, yeah there's always been an ongoing UFO investigation program uh, within the, as I said, the RAAF, the Royal Australian Air Force, that, that was the main focus of that official investigation and that had been conducted from the 1950s through the 60s right through the 70s and 80s. By the time that I got to investigate the files in Canberra um, between 82 and 84, uh, they were seriously attempting to try and kill off their whole involvement in the UFO subject in the wake of the Conrad Report and that kind of stuff, but uh, they had a lot of difficulties trying to do that and... Uh, uh, but uh, their interest in it was flagging uh, substantially. And uh, so in 84, actually, in the wake of my access to it, uh, they publicly sort of said they were downgrading their interest in the UFO subject, but then that kept going for a little while on a, a very low ebb right through to the end of the 80s where they finally announced that uh, by the early 90s that they just weren't in the game anymore and that the only cases that they would be interested in is uh, cases that involve national security. And uh, also they would then um, refer any reports that they got that didn't fill under the national security umbrella, they would refer those to civilian groups across Australia. And, it, and that's essentially been the situation through through the 90s and into uh, uh, you know, the, the 21st century. The, the, the um, reports are essentially sent on to civilian groups and... Uh, to my mind, looking at and comparing the official investigation and the civilian investigation, I think uh, it's pretty clear to me that civilian groups have got a great deal more credibility in terms of a, a more substantial take on the UFO subject. Even just one state uh, and Tasmania, uh, I mentioned them as earlier, the, the Tasmanian UFO Investigation Centre, were a very efficient group, even though it's only one island state. And they, just one small island state, had actually investigated more UFO cases than the entire investigation of the RAAF, uh, and that's wow. the government body. So uh, uh, just in one state alone, I, I think just in terms of the number of cases that have been investigated, uh, 
uh, I think that's a pretty powerful argument that I think the civilian investigation has been a lot more substantial than the military investigation. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Now, what about the sort of idea of government cover-ups of the UFO phenomenon? How, how extensive do you think that sort of thing may be permeating the Australian government? Uh, well, that's always been an ongoing kind of argument amongst a lot of the civilian UFO community here in Australia. and. Yeah. Um, uh, that's one of the things that I was examining very closely, particularly in terms of my investigations during the early 80s when I had access to the files. And it's always been a bit of an apocryphal kind of thing, um, uh, attempting to try and con confirm this. But uh, there's one case uh, in particular that probably is like the Holy Grail in many ways, uh, uh, and, and that is the Westall School case. Um, and this is a, a major case that took place in 1966 in April in Victoria, in suburban Melbourne, that's the capital of Victoria, uh, there was a school there, the Westall Public School, which was a, like a primary school and uh, a high school connected to each other. Um, and during the morning recess, and uh, this is around about 11 o'clock in the morning, uh, there was a, a commotion uh, that occurred in the school grounds. Uh, there was a PE class, that's a physical education class, you know, with the girls out in the uh, school grounds uh, doing uh, physical education type classes, uh, gymnastics, that kind of stuff, and uh, observed uh, what appeared to be a, a, a UFO coming over the over the school grounds, and uh, then a commotion sort of broke out, and then within a short period of time, uh, a very large portion of the school, including teachers um, and a couple of hundred school kids, were all witnessing the passage of this object uh, and it, it, there's conflicting claims, but it appears that maybe two, possibly three objects were involved, and uh, the, this object or more than one object landed at, at a couple of different locations, uh, one area in close proximity to the school, on the boundary of the school, and also in a, a market garden area or an area that was called the Grange. Uh, uh, apparently one of the objects landed there. There was also suggestions that there were civilian aircraft that were being uh, buzzed by the UFO as well. Mm -hmm. uh, all this occurred in, in broad daylight, uh, hundreds of witnesses, and uh, caused a huge sensation at the time. Uh, then there was a, it appeared to be a huge clampdown. Uh, there were suggestions that the military uh, uh, officials turned up, um, that the physical evidence of the ground markings, in at least one case there were suggestions that the military had actually burnt out the site to remove evidence. Um, the school kids were uh, brought together, apparently. A number of them claimed this, that, that the government officials um, told them that uh, it was only an experiment that wasn't supposed to have happened here, that it got out of control, uh, uh, it wasn't meant to uh, happen that way, uh, that we'd appreciate you saying nothing about it, uh, don't talk to anybody, uh, all that kind of stuff. And there, was, there seemed to be a lot of evidence suggesting that in this one particular case, and, and it's not, not totally unique, there's a lot of other similar cases as well, uh, that suggest that there was some big cover-up involved with that particular case. And uh, that was one key case that I was looking for, for solid evidence uh, in the government files, because there was plenty of evidence from the witnesses, the school children and the, some of the teachers, that there was a major intervention in that case by government uh, investigators. And yet there is no official case that we can access on this on this case, and uh, so uh, that that case seems to be a very strong example of a possible cover up. And uh, there are numerous other cases as well. 
that suggests that there may have been a cover-up. But in terms of the actual files that I investigated, uh, it seemed to be more of a, a foul-up rather than a cover-up from what I could see, that they really weren't dealing with the UFA problem in, a, in an effective way. Take off those glasses and apologise to everybody that you frightened. Take off your glasses and apologise to us. I'll say sorry, but I'm not taking off my glasses. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Best party ever so far. That's what everyone's been saying, so... Well, we've got to go, but I suggest you go away and uh, take a good, long, hard look at yourself. I have. Everyone has. They love it. All right, one more military-slash-government question to ask you, and that's... uh, it seems like in some countries there's a deference to the U.S., and, and maybe in the Australian case it would be the U.K. government. Do you see much interaction between the Australian government and the U.S. slash U.K. government with regards to the UFOs? You know, like I've heard of, uh, you know, in some countries, like we were talking about the South African guest I had on, he was telling the story about the UFO that crashed and somehow it ended up getting sent to America. So is there, is there a situation like that in Australia too, or are they pretty independent on UFO stuff? Largely speaking, it's been sort of maintained um, within Australia, but there does seem to be uh, some sort of relationship between particularly the American government and the British government, probably more so the British government in earlier times, but because of the uh, prominence of things like Project Blue Book through the United States Air Force, uh, the American program was always deemed to be the uh, the official guidebook, so to speak, and uh, one of the the more substantial cases, which uh, was literally referred to as the Australian uh, UFO Holy Grail, was a case that occurred in 1953, uh, the so-called Drury film. This was a, a daylight movie footage taken by a Super 8 cam- uh, camera uh, by the deputy uh, head of the Department of Civil Aviation in, in Port Moresby in Papua New Guinea. This is the big island uh, country uh, to the north of Australia, which at that time was a... Uh, Colony or protectorate of the Australian government, and uh, he took he was filming actually a native fisherman and, and then saw a very fast moving rocket shaped object uh, tearing across the sky and he filmed this uh, for uh, he he thought about thirty seconds up to a minute um, and uh, then that film became the subject of a very intense investigation by the military and the intelligence community. Uh, I actually spoke to. Uh, the two ASIO officers, this is our domestic intelligence service, uh, I actually interviewed them uh, decades after and uh, and usually, uh, as you would expect, these intelligence people weren't particularly forthcoming but they did indicate that they maybe acted in, in, the, in the form of a courier kind of capability and they actually brought that film back to Melbourne in Australia and I was subjected to a fairly intensive investigation here but the story goes that it eventually found its way across to the United States and came under the attention of the, I think it's called the, uh, is it the National uh, Photographic uh, Interpretation Centre, which at that time in the 50s was a uh, was a front for a CIA operation, um, and it, it uh, apparently was examined through that the same sort of attention that was given to some of the early famous films such as the Tremont film and the Great Falls film. In the United States, uh, it kind of got that similar attention. But when the film arrived back in Australia, it, it then became very controversial, uh, simply because by the time the deputy director, uh, it was Tom, a fellow called Tom Drury, got the film back, uh, 
it appeared that, that uh, the main portions of the film had been deleted. Yeah. And uh, uh, it, it became a, a real kind of uh, celebrated case for the possible cover-up and connections with the uh, US authorities, the CIA, and all that kind of stuff uh, here in Australia. And, and so there was this long-term effort particularly amongst the civilian community, to track down the missing sections of the uh, the Drury footage. And I actually came across prints from the footage um, in the Air Force files. Uh, very convoluted story, but it, it goes more towards the argument that, that it was a real kind of foul-up in this case, maybe rather more so than a cover-up. But, but it, it was a clear example of... Uh, how the domestic operation here, the military operation, uh, deferred to uh, American authorities because they sent the film across there to be examined in more detail. Yeah. But it was a very controversial case, that one. Sounds like it. Now, uh, this last one here on the military government part is kind of a wild one, but I wanted to ask you because I remember hearing in various circles in ufology about a mountain or something that's in Australia that's part of a U.S. base that, that some people claim is part of uh, an alien base, too, or something like that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, this is probably part of the apocryphal stories that surround uh, Central Australia. Um, uh, there's a... Um, uh, a mountain there called Mount Zeal, um, which is to the west of uh, the rather sensitive Pine Gap facility there. Pine Gap is another one of these so-called joint uh, American and Australian facilities. Um, Pine Gap's the centre of all sorts of apocryphal tales about it being a, uh, some sort of underground base or whatever. But in terms of the mainstream, uh, Pine Gap is just seen as another one of these major uh, listening facilities uh, that's centred in, in Central Australia, but uh, Mount Zeal uh, was deemed to be uh, a location that was uh, fingered by um, claims that, that emerged from remote viewing uh, exercises that were conducted um, uh, through uh, the early um, um, U.S. Uh, Army facilities and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, there, there's been a lot of attention to this remote viewing campaign that was conducted through the U.S. military uh, and um, people uh, were obviously investigating this aspect, but apparently some early attempts to test some of the U.S. Army remote viewers uh, uh, involved remote viewing uh, four facilities around the world uh, that were allegedly possibly alien bases, and one of these was Mount Zeal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, so Mount Zeal has been a bit of a focus, but there's uh, no credible evidence to back that up at this stage, but certainly in Pine Gap, which is just to the east of Mount Seal, uh, has been the subject of a lot of apocryphal UFO stories. I've even had abductees claiming that they've uh, been on board UFOs that have flowing into the underground facility at Pine Gap. So <laughs> it's certainly the subject of some interesting stories. Yeah, so it sounds like an Australian Area 51 type situation. Yeah, but very, very difficult to confirm. And uh, again, I put those all in the in the category of apocryphal stories. You know, very interesting tales, but very difficult to substantiate. Yeah. Uh, you know, we we have our even our own fair share of crashed UFO stories, and none that are quite on the scale of Roswell, but certainly some that are interesting to say the least. All right, now to to look at the next big pillar, I guess you could say, of influence here on the UFO phenomenon and ufology in Australia, and that's the media. I guess for starters, just talk about, you know, how the media has looked at the UFO phenomenon over the years. How has it changed, if it has changed at all? You know, what's been the evolution of media coverage of UFOs? Right. Well, 
probably during the 50s, there was a lot of kind of openness and a lot of serious kind of reporting in many ways. And that serious reporting has turned up from time to time over the decades, particularly in the wake of the uh, Frederick Valenti's disappearance over Bass Strait and the Kaikoura UFO reports out of New Zealand at the end of 1978. This is the case that involved a, a news crew, a media crew out of um, a, a Melbourne TV station uh, here in Australia going across to New Zealand to investigate pilot UFO reports in New Zealand. And while on board, they uh, filmed UFOs, and some of these UFOs were correlated with ground radar uh, events as well. Um, so it, it was a very spectacular case that got a lot of media interest. And so in the wake of that, there was a lot of serious reporting as well. And from time to time, there's intermittent uh, serious reporting, but, but the majority of media reporting I would regard as less than compelling, and it's usually filler entertainment kind of fodder and, and really um, substantial stuff and, and really based on any serious investigation of the subject and, and so media reporting much like it is in the, in the United States is more often than not pretty uh, poor in, in terms of uh, going to the heart of the substantial basis of the UFO phenomenon. It's pretty rare to get good solid substantial media reporting. Yeah. In fact to, me, to my mind it's been more of a dumbing down of the subject courtesy of the media. Um, they rarely engage uh, in a substantial way with the substantial nature of it. Uh, from time to time, there's the odd exception, perhaps. Uh, just in the last uh, year, I was involved with a uh, helping set up an evidence room that was attached to a um, an art gallery that was um, exhibiting uh, what was called the Visitors Exhibition, which is basically Australia's... Um, connection to UFOs and aliens, etc. So there's a lot of artworks associated with it uh, where mainstream artists were doing paintings and, and various kinds of um, responses to the alien subject. And uh, uh, so I, I was engaged to uh, set up an evidence room with that and it, it was very substantially responded to. There was a lot of public interest and a fair bit of media reporting to it. And most of that was reasonably objective. And uh, um, so there, there is a a real ebb and flow that goes on, uh, but it's a very rare event to see any good coherent reporting from the media. Yeah, and what about um, the paranormal media, if you will? You know, like here in America, we have Coast to Coast AM. That's a pretty mainstream program that does cover the paranormal, and there's also a host of paranormal programs on basic cable now here in America, and not including, you know, American imports from you know, not including stuff that comes from America that gets shown on Australian TV or Australian radio, is there much in the way of paranormal media? Uh, there is to a limited extent. A lot of that's internet-based, uh, as you often have in the United States as well. Um, there was, up till recently, um, a thing called Ghost Radio that focused on a broad cross-section of um, the uh, uh, UFO paranormal subjects, that kind of stuff. Um, that, that came out of uh, Western Australia, um, but I think that's now in retirement at the moment. But there are a lot of individual kinds of efforts uh, across a diverse range of subjects, including UFOs, uh, cryptozoology or mystery animal type things, ghosts, the paranormal, all that kind of stuff. Um, that's all reasonably well served by a lot of different internet sites that get into these kinds of things. And uh, But in terms of major media outlets, there's very little of that occurring in Australia. There's the odd occasional burst of interest and uh, programming that might get into that kind of thing. We we had during the, the 80s and early 90s um, 
a TV program that was quite popular called The Extraordinary that covered all those kinds of subjects and uh, UFOs and, and uh, ghosts and that kind of thing. And uh, that was that was a, a very uh, well-received kind of program for quite a while, but that too petered out after a few years. Um, these days, it's, it's more of, as I said earlier, a bit of a dumbing down in terms of media interest when they do engage with the subjects such as UFOs. Uh, they don't do it in a very uh, serious kind of way most of the time. It's a pretty rare thing. There's a new thing coming on the horizon called Hot Zone coming out of Australia as well, but uh, it's still yet to see the light of day in terms of substantial programming yet. But but also, too, there's a, couple, there's a freelance documentary maker that's making a program based on uh, the West Hall school case that I mentioned in 1966. They're mm-hmm. making a documentary devoted to that one single case because of its spectacular nature. Um, so there, there is some signs of healthy media interest, but it's it's more the exception than the rule. Yeah. Sounds a little bit like America there. <laughs> <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. And then I guess the last big Australian UFO uh puzzle piece that I wanted to fit into the whole equation here, and that's the everyday people, not you and me and, and, and you know, the people that work with you and the people who listen to my show, but the people who don't seem to have uh, any interest really in the UFO phenomenon. What's the general attitude, I guess you could say, of the, of the public in Australia with regards to UFOs? Well, I, I think it's a kind of a, a, a still a strong interest there. Um, I, I think because of the the kind of uh, naive treatment the media gives it from time to time. Um, most people, uh, most of the general public, tend to report their sightings through to these various internet sites that are a bit of a more of a receptive ear to their, their experiences. They tend to shy away from mainstream media. In terms of, uh, you know, I, I guess, uh, more uh, organised uh, indications of the level of interest, uh, public polling, for example, um, uh, back in uh, 1988, there was a, a what was called a Solwick opinion poll that found that 42% of Australians um, believed in UFOs. Now, more recently, uh, in 2005, uh, Reader's Digest did a, a similar kind of polling, and uh, they were coming up with figures like um, 84% of believers think aliens will be friendly, uh, four out of five believe that aliens exist, um, 67% of the polling indicated that aliens had already visited Earth and all that kind of stuff. So there were some pretty significant figures there, but again, polling is polling, I guess. It's hard to tell how well that correlates out there into the wider community. There seems to be a high level of interest there amongst the community, but it's often driven by uh, uh, media. And, uh, of course, a lot of the media interest is uh, pretty poor. So it's hard to know... uh, the media interest isn't uh, a good expression of, of the public interest. Um, whenever there's some serious uh, documentation going on, there, there seems to be a high level of interest. And, uh, um, so there, there are some signs there that it's a, it's a subject that's still of, of great interest to the general public. Yeah. I'm sure you have your, your share of skeptics in Australia too, right? Have you had run-ins with your Australian brand skeptics? Yeah, we, we have, a, I guess, the... Um, uh, the Psychops variant here, the Australian Skeptics Group here, um, and uh, the, 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 their interest seems to be more of an armchair variety. I've had various engagements with them from time to time, and they seem to have a healthy respect for my involvement, uh, but um, they, they don't engage with the subject in a substantial kind of way. Um, 
it seems to take more of a, a debunking persona. Um, you know, it can't be there for it doesn't exist type approach. Uh, yeah. And so they, um, so but they do. Uh, the, the, this is an example of the way the, the media tends to be fairly superficial about it. They uh, often, if they have something of a UFO nature or a paranormal nature, they they all drag out the skeptics, and the, the skeptics have generally not done much homework when it comes to the particular case or experience involved, but usually uh, write the whole thing off. And so that, that, that tends to be their kind of approach. Yeah, so much like America. So, so it, it, yeah, it, that's a kind of typical kind of approach. So uh, uh, as for detailed engagement by skeptics with these respective subjects, it, it just seems to be fairly superficial most of the time. Yeah. I've, I've, I've even said to the uh, one of the former presidents of the Australian Skeptic Society that perhaps they should rename their organisation rather than being the Australian Skeptic Society. They should call themselves the Australian Debunking Society, but they didn't seem to take too kindly to that. So. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, is there anything else we should touch on here for Australian ufology? I mean, we've already... <laughs> I know we've done two hours, so... I've probably, probably exhausted you already, so... Well, no, I'm doing all right. I just wanted to make sure we didn't miss out on any area that you thought deserved coverage here well you know i i think um i think the fact that that we've got a fairly robust and uh, energetic sort of research community that's sort of there uh, and it's documenting the ufo subject there's large numbers of uh, investigators etc of different shades of of involvement that kind of thing that help document the ufo subject and we have a pretty healthy kind of uh interaction with the wider world ufo community and uh, i th- i think what of more general importance is that uh, this Australian UFO experience attests to the fact that we're dealing with a global UFO experience rather than something that's uh, just a, an American kind of obsession, perhaps. You know, and a lot, a lot of commentators over the decades, particularly in the, the early decades, like the 50s and 60s, always saw it as, as an, an American-generated uh, form of hysteria, perhaps. But the subject's a lot more robust than that, and that's why I've uh, no. Um, Examine the Australian scene in detail. It's it's uh, clearly another manifestation of the international dimensions of the subject. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what we're all about here on the show is is, is uh, bringing out the global dimensions of this whole thing. Now, as far as Australian phenomenon go, have you ever had a run in with a Junjidi? A Junjidi. Uh, maybe there's a pronunciation problem going on. There. <laughs> Lost in translation. It's like a mini Bigfoot. Oh, yes, yeah. Um, I know that you spoke earlier to Tony Hillius, a friend of mine as well, and uh, his co-author, uh, Paul Cropper, they put together a couple of good uh, uh, books on it, um, on the Yowie scene here in Australia, and uh, there's certainly a number of researchers here in Australia that examine that whole Bigfoot uh, Yowie scene here, and um, uh, there seems to be some pretty impressive evidence for that, you know. And uh, So there is this kind of informal network that operates around Australia, people like me that who are familiar with people like Paul Cropper and Tony Healy, etc. When we run across uh, a case like that, we obviously defer to people like Tony and, yeah. and Paul to investigate these sorts of things. Yeah, we each have our areas of specialty, but uh, as for a personal encounter with a, a Yowie or uh, that kind of thing, no, I haven't had one. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I just wanted to throw out a Yowie reference and, and uh, put over Tony and Paul's book, which is outstanding, uh, the Yowie book. Yes. And now when we were setting up the interview here, you said you wanted to talk about the China-Asia experience. And uh, I really, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. I presume ufology in China and Asia, but let's dig into that a little bit and talk about that because it sounds like something you've become interested in. Well, well certainly it's become a, a pretty substantial interest of mine, and particularly in recent years, because uh, I was kind of led to it 
in many ways through the uh, rather bizarre DNA connections that came out of the Pudicuri alien air investigation. I should preface that by saying I'm not saying categorically that the Curry hair sample is an alien hair sample, but it certainly has some pretty compelling evidence attached to it. So it's it's but it's one particular example. But uh, through the investigation there, that's led us into examining some of the connections that have emerged uh, from the Asian subcontinent, that kind of thing, and. Uh, it kind of renewed my interest in the general Asian UFO experience, which has been largely neglected. Um, and the Chinese UFO experience, or certainly from a civilian investigator point of view, didn't really take off until the late 70s, particularly because uh, China was being devastated by things like the Cultural Revolution and all that kind of stuff, and, mm-hmm. and the communist regime and that kind of thing. And uh, uh, but when Chinese ufology finally took off in the late 70s, um, it took off in a fairly big way. And uh, Western researchers often look with a little degree of envy with, uh, at the Chinese scene because uh, it, it seems to have a fair degree of prominence of scientists and academics amongst the civilian UFO research community. And also they have uh, sort of milestones like a UFO publication that has a circulation of half a million, that kind of thing. And, oh, wow. Uh, when you have that kind of uh, spectacular uh, thing by Western standards occurring, it certainly draws attention. And so given those kinds of points of stimulus, um, I was kind of intrigued by the Chinese UFO scene. I wanted to get to, really to the bottom of it. and. I've been there three times now, 2002, 2005, and 2006. And particularly during 2005, I attended a, a uh, UFO conference at Dalian, which is a northern port city, quite a uh, beautiful city, uh, but, but it's uh, also the centre of a vibrant UFO research community there as well. And at that conference, uh, the only uh, other Westerner um, uh, was uh, Stan Friedman, who was also a uh, researcher from Hungary and a uh, an enthusiast from Israel as well. So we were the only kind of representatives there amongst uh, the, Ch- the Chinese Asian research community there, um, giving our, our take on the scene. And um, it was a really interesting experience to uh, somewhat kind of lost in translation to a certain extent, but uh, it allowed me to uh, engage directly and continue stuff that I'd set up in 2002 engaged directly with a lot of the key UFO researchers in China and uh, through that I was able to um, get access to a lot of the key data on some of their um, uh, substantial abduction uh, cases and UFO cases and, and so it, it just basically confirmed that there again there's a, a pretty robust international dimension to the phenomenon and, and, and so it's an ongoing kind of thing and I'm trying to work at a, a manuscript on trying to document the whole uh, Chinese scene and also the, the wider Asian UFO experience as well. Uh, because of the Curie investigation, that led us also into investigating things in Thailand as well and a couple of other locations there as well. Now, before I ask the next question, do you know any English-speaking Chinese ufologists? Because I would love to get one on the show. I've been trying to break into the Pacific Rim for a while here, and I can't find any. I was calling over to Japan you know, two months ago uh, and getting all these Japanese-speaking people who didn't know any English, so I need to yeah. try to get in there. Yeah, that's always a, pro- a bit of a problem uh, in terms of trying to get a handle of the Chinese scene because uh, the, the key person that was associated with the Chinese scene in terms of its uh, disclosure in America, for example, was Paul Dong, who came out with the book in, I think, about 1984, I think, uh, The Four Mainland Mysteries of China now. So he's he's English-speaking, but he would be in his, I think, 70s now, I think. Um, so he would be a good person to talk to, but... Uh, 
uh, he certainly documented the opening of the civilian investigations, particularly from the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, I think his book was actually had a, a forward by Dr. Alan Hynek as well. Oh, wow. Uh, but in addition to that, the other key uh, publications that came out on the Chinese UFO scene actually unfortunately, well, uh, I guess fortunately for the French, uh, all came out in France uh, through uh, a Chinese researcher uh, by the name of Chibot. He's written three books on the subject and uh, um, they all give a fairly substantial take, uh, undertaking of the subject, but I don't think he speaks English either. And in addition to that, the, the best known of the civilian researchers out of China uh, would be Sun Shi Li, but he too uh, doesn't speak English and uh, most of his appearances in the United States have been translated um, uh, by Spanish speakers because he was uh, at one point Chairman Mao's Spanish translator. So, oh, wow. so there's a real lost in translation exercise going on here. Now I have I have met a couple of um, English speaking Chinese researchers in Beijing and a couple of other places, but how willing they would be and how able they would be to I guess articulate the full dimensions of the, of the subject in China, I'm not sure, but it, it's something I, I'd take on board and perhaps come back to you on that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to task you with that, if you don't mind, because uh, yeah. I've got a couple other people working on this whole thing of breaking, breaking banal of America into into the China, Japan, Asia area. But it's, it's hard. But, you know, we, we got into South Africa and now Australia, so I'm hoping we can spread this thing around the world and, and talk to more people around the world. Yeah, one of, one of the key researchers I was dealing with there uh, used to know English, um, uh, Zhang Jinping, but uh, fortunately because he never used English but he's his uh, grasp of English lapsed over the decades or so, and, and so uh, I've had to use uh, interpreters um, when I when I sort of uh, talk with him, basically. And but he's been one of the key researchers in terms of investigating a lot of the abduction cases in China, and a uh, very active researcher, etc. Um, and so he's quite prominent over there. Sun Xu Li is more of a a father figure now in terms of Chinese ufology, and uh, has kind of taken a bit of a back seat, but he's still seen as a as a prominent father figure in, in the, the civilian UFO community over there in China. Yeah, yeah. I guess the point of view here in America is that we think that the Chinese government is pretty hostile in general, you know, and, 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 and tyrannical, I guess is the best word. How uh, does the Chinese government feel about this civilian UFO scene, and, and how much is, is, is uh, run by the Chinese government, do you think? That's a very difficult thing, something that I tried to get a, a firm grasp of because um, there have been some fairly dramatic um, military encounters that have emerged out of China as well, particularly uh, during the 80s and 90s, and uh, those cases have come out in, in, in a bit of a piecemeal fashion, and it's very difficult to get a degree of official confirmation of some of these things, but some of them have leaked out, uh, particularly through the civilian groups and that kind of thing. It's very hard to articulate the level of involvement um, in, in terms of the government's tolerance to the, the civilian UFO scene. It, it, it certainly seems to enjoy a, a lot more tolerance than our own domestic UFO investigations here uh, in Australia and the United States, for example. Um, there almost seems to be a, a form of de facto um, acknowledgement uh, the civilian UFO group, the main one, Puro, is actually uh, has a, a part in, I guess, the broader 
more general scientific networking that goes on in, in China. It, you know, there are various societies like the um, chemical societies and physics societies and mathematical societies here in the Western world. Uh, the Chinese UFO group seems to occupy a similar kind of place, but they realise too. They realise, though, to put it into proper context, that it is a, a junior player and uh, very much on the outer rather than the inner circle. But it does seem to have that kind of connection. But uh, again, also too, I should point out that uh, there is still a, a healthy skeptics community in China as well. And as long as the UFO researchers don't digress too much into the mystical religious scene, uh, all, all is well. But as soon as you start to cross that line into the mystical kind of stuff, uh, it starts to get into the kind of problem areas that, that occur with uh, things like the Falun Gong organisation. Um, the leader of that organisation made some somewhat bizarre claims about extraterrestrials and UFOs and that kind of stuff. And so uh, as soon as that, there was that kind of connection, a lot of the civilian researchers uh, learned to be very uh, flexible in the profile that they had and would perhaps take a low profile while there was sort of a clampdown on things like Falun Gong. Yeah. Um, so it, it, is, it is a fairly difficult thing to discern, but uh, recently I, I've been, well, I've been aware for some time that this prior, uh, the, the official, well, in terms of civilian UFO groups, uh, there, there was this uh, clear indication that uh, ufology in China emerged in the late 70s in the wake of the Cultural Revolution. What doesn't seem well documented is that there seems to have been a, a major official investigation that took place in China during the 60s, 70s that, that has been fairly well hidden, but I'm starting to learn of some of that courtesy of uh, the activities of, of, of some um, business people that, that apparently had prominent roles. These are overseas business people that, that uh, had activities in China during the Cultural Revolution period and they became aware of what appeared to be substantial investigations conducted by um, scientists and uh, officially sanctioned investigators and all of this was kept secret uh, during the 60s and the 70s and uh, uh, that's something I'm trying to work on to get a full handle of but there were some pretty bizarre stories uh, that emerged, for example, allegedly Chinese investigators, uh, official investigators, uh, investigating a, an outbreak of a of a, a town or a city being besieged by UFOs to the point where uh, there was the claim that the local key authorities, such as the mayor, were were almost possessed by alien intelligences, and and the and the story goes that was given to me was that the um, Chinese authorities had a pretty aggressive and robust approach to resolving this problem of a alien takeover of a town and that, that was that they went in and apparently shot the mayor and uh, <laughs> the alien infestation problem was ended allegedly according to the source that gave that story to me. So it's a pretty bizarre story but it highlighted that there was some sort of um, uh, I guess fatalistic approach that the Chinese authorities had to the, to the claim that aliens were there. They seemed to, according to the source giving me this story, uh, suggested that uh, the authorities accepted that aliens and UFOs were real and that they tolerated their presence as long as they didn't interfere too much with, with Chinese society. And when, when they did, they would uh, aggressively respond to it. 
uh, that's a tale yet to be fully told yet, and I, I, I had to be able to document that in a bit more substantial way in, in, in perhaps not too distant future. Nice. So there does seem to be a lot of hidden dimensions to the UFO experience in China, which is slowly emerging. Yeah, I hope so, because it's a fascinating area, huge country, huge population. There's got to be so much UFO information there. And, and like I said, hopefully we can open some doors here and, and get some English-speaking people on. Even if they've left China, maybe they'd feel sa- feel safer in that regard. Well, I think a lot of discussion in, on UFOs is fairly open in China, as long as it doesn't digress into uh, controversial areas. Yeah, I just wouldn't want to cause someone to get executed or something like that, you know, so play it safe. Oh, I don't think that's likely to happen, but... (laughs) (laughs) They must be watching too much Fox News over here or something, I don't know. Well, Bill, we've talked quite a bit here about all all things Australian ufology and and a lot of stuff here on China and Asia and ufology. Uh, What do you have up your sleeve? What do you have coming down the pike? Uh, What are your plans for the future? Uh, short-term, long-term, what can we expect from Bill Chalker? Obviously, you got the two books out already, The Oz Files and Hair of the Alien. Sounds like you're working on all kinds of other stuff. Share with us uh, what we can expect from Bill Chalker in the future. Well, I, I'm certainly you know, sort of researching uh, in a very deep way the whole Asian UFO experiences, as we've just addressed, but I'm also interested in uh, documenting, I, I guess, the history of uh, the engagement of science with the UFO subject and a lot of that is a very sorry kind of history And uh, but uh, I also want to try and document that in a lot more detail uh, particularly perhaps to uh, two audiences, both the general audience but also the scientific community in terms of highlighting the fact that there has been from time to time substantial engagements uh, by members of the scientific community but usually in isolation and uh, when you ask science and UFOs, the question of, of most scientists, all they generally know about is things like the Condiment Committee report, and yet few of them have actually even read it. And those that have, uh, more often than not, have a completely different response. You know, it's not generally known that, for example, um, the Japan group out of France uh, came into being mainly through the uh, activities of Dr. Claude Pereur, who uh, read the Condiment report uh, shortly after it came out. And contrary to the conclusions of the Condon Committee, uh, he read the Condon Report in detail, uh, front cover to back cover, and uh, came away thinking that there was a bona fide UFO problem that had to be looked at. And so he uh, got engaged with it and uh, was instrumental in getting JPAN, the the official French organisation, up and running in the 70s as a consequence of it. So I think there's an important story to be told there about you know, the scientific potential of the UFO subject and that's something I'm working strongly on at the moment as well and, and also trying to uh, document the, the broader history of the UFO subject in Australia as well. Nice, nice. Sounds good. Any uh, coming back to America anytime soon, speaking engagements or anything like that? Uh, no invitations out there at the moment, but I uh, certainly would like to uh, because, there's a, as you probably appreciate it today, that, that there's a big story to be told there that isn't that well known in terms of, uh, I guess, the American audience. Absolutely, absolutely. We were trying to bring the American audience up to speed here on the global UFO phenomenon, and as we bring more guests on, like you and Christo Lowe and Gildas Bordes, you know, people are starting to understand just how deep and rich the UFO history is all around the world. One thing in particular uh, I thought was really interesting was that uh, one of the things I've been pushing in the wake of the Hair of the Alien book, for example, and the focus on this uh, DNA forensic focus is that uh, I was really pushing that hard in terms of having a more scientific forensic 
uh, approach to these sorts of cases. And uh, I find it uh, interesting that, uh, for example, organisations like MUFON are, are particularly getting into that and starting to promote the forensic type of approach to UFO investigations. So uh, I think that's great that that's starting to occur and uh, uh, it certainly gratifies me because I've, I've been sort of pushing that approach, particularly in the wake of this uh, investigation of the Peter Curie case. Absolutely, definitely. Well, like I said, Bill, I can't thank you enough here for coming on the show. Uh, we started out slotted at an hour. We've gone two and a half, and I have a feeling that uh, if I wasn't worried about my phone bill and all kinds of, and, and, and it wasn't running up to midnight here in Boston, we probably could go for another two and a half hours. I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, giving us so much time. I really appreciate that and really educating us so much on so many different aspects of the Australian UFO scene. I'm sure that this is going to be a must-hear episode for any serious student of the UFO phenomenon on the global perspective because they're going to learn so much about what was going on down under with regards to UFOs all these years. And, and we can thank you for that information. So thank you for coming on the show and thank you for enlightening us to this fascinating history of ufology in Australia. Well, thank you for the opportunity. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 3. I can't thank Bill Chalker enough for appearing on the show and giving us so much time and working around the big time zone differences between Boston and Australia. He was a real pleasure to work with and someone I'm looking forward to speaking with again sometime in the future. You can find out more on Bill Chalker at the following websites www.theozfiles.com and ozfiles.blogspot.com. Moving right along now, my voice is really failing me here, so we're going to skip over listener feedback this week. We'll bring it back next week, I promise. Hopefully my voice will be 100% by then. If you would like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's three ways to go about doing it. Either A, go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. B, simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Or C, join the BOA forum at theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. A, B, or C, either one of those avenues provides you with the means to get in touch with me and have your correspondence featured on BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, the thanks portion of the show. Big, big, super huge thanks to the outstanding BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas of Wales. Monday through Friday, tremendous esoteric observations from the BOA staff only at banalofamerica.com. Without them, we would just be a podcast with them. We are a multifaceted, multi-voiced outlet of esoteric opinion. As we say week in and week out here at the end of the program, if you're just listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at banalofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. Check out BOA and make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. My voice is really killing me right now, so we're just going to do a quick shout-out here and ask for your donations the season is winding down. You've heard just now a two-hour-plus phone call to Australia. It is our fifth international guest over the course of the season, and I think in total those episodes probably come near 10 hours altogether at least. 
and these bills add up and the bills are paid for by yours truly with help from great BOA audio listeners who make donations. How can you make a donation? That's simple. You go to binallofamerica.com or the BOA audio archive page and you click the golden PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the donation process. No donation is too small and all donations go towards keeping BOA audio and binallofamerica.com up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we're going to go off the beaten esoteric path as we'll examine the world of supervolcanoes and calderas with Marie Jones. Many of you may recall Marie from her appearance on BOA Audio Season 2 when we discussed her book, Science, P-S-I-E-N-C-E. This year, we're going to be talking about her new book, which she co-authored with her father, titled Supervolcano. Marie's going to give us a sweeping overview of what calderas are and where they can be found, the infamous Toba eruption of 75,000 years ago, the Yellowstone caldera that has many in esoterica buzzing, and which area poses the most danger should a supervolcano erupt. We'll also be wargaming a caldera eruption to find out how extensive the damage would be and how, if at all, people can prepare for such an event. In addition to all that, we're going to have some bonus discussion on women in esoterica and the rise of the ghost hunting fad. It's an informative and informal edition of BOA Audio with one of the fastest rising and most respected researchers in the paranormal world today, Marie Jones. Stop on by BOA towards the end of next week for a preview on that, and come on back next weekend to pick up the MP3s, streaming audio, and podcast feed for Marie Jones talking about super volcanoes on BOA Audio. And on that note, we're going to call it a week here. Uh, Luckily, I made it through. I didn't lose my voice entirely, but it's pretty worn out and roughed up, so I apologize for that, and thank you for your patience here, folks. Luckily, we've managed to get the episode out pretty early for you this weekend. Hope you're all having an outstanding Memorial Day weekend. Until next time, this is Tim Benal, thanking you for listening and signing off.